hope that you were able to spend some time with people that you love, and I'm glad that you're here because we love you as well. And um, my name is Randy, if this is your first Sunday here at the church, and I'm privileged, ever so privileged to serve as the uh, senior minister here at the church. So uh, thank you so much for being here. We're in a series of messages over uh, the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians. And this morning, we're going to be looking at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament uh, book of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And you're going to find that on page 989 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, there's a a copy of the Bible. It's in the pouch in front of you. And please uh, take it as a gift from this church family if you don't have uh, uh, your own Bible. and Put your name in it and just take it home uh, as a a thank you gift from us. Um, I'm going to be reading 2 Thessalonians chapter Two, the entire chapter, 17 verses. It's all one unit, and so we need to read it together. You follow along with me as I read. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. So that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember That when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. And hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is God's word. 
periodically I'll have conversations with some of you and we'll sit down for a visit. Um, And for some reason your spirit is alarmed. For some reason you're having what uh, I would call a faith quake. A faith quake. What do I mean by that? I mean that you're in a season where you're just really feeling uncertain about Christianity. You're feeling uncertain about the truth of the Bible. You're feeling uncertain about the claims of Jesus. You're feeling uncertain about what you have been taught or what you've experienced in terms of the Christian faith. And after a while, you muster up the courage to come and meet with your minister. And I say muster up the courage because there's that dynamic, right? Where on top of all of your uncertainty, you're wondering, well, if I go see my minister, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? So, you know, am I not only going to feel uncertain, but then feel shamed? And by the way, if you're ever wondering that with this minister, here's what you can expect. You can expect me to say, been there, done that, more than once, okay? Been there, done that. You feel uncertain? Welcome. You're in the right place. Right. What do you need when you're feeling that way? What do you need when, you are, when your faith is shaken, when your mind is unsettled, when your spirit is alarmed? What do you need? Here's, here's what I've learned. Here's what I've discovered. Um, I, think, uh, I think I have felt like I've needed these that I'm about to tell you, and I, I've certainly experienced that you've needed this. You need comfort and you need truth. You need a pastor to comfort your soul. And maybe it's not your pastor, maybe it's an elder or maybe it is a mature believer or someone that you trust. But you need your soul comforted. You need someone to come alongside you and say, you know what, I totally understand, I get it. You're feeling uncertain, you're feeling alarmed about your faith, I told, it's okay. It's okay to feel uncertain. It's okay to feel shaken. This happens. You are not the first person that this has happened to, and you will not be the last person. So you need comfort, number one. And then number two, you need truth. You need truth. You need, you need, um, you need meat for your mind. You need food for your thinking. So this pastoral moment is also a teaching moment. And typically I approach it in that order. Because when you feel safe, and when you feel pastored, then you can deal with truth, you see. When you're feeling alarmed, when you're feeling uncertain, you need comfort and you need truth. Okay? All right. That's what's going on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. That's exactly what's going on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians is the second letter that the apostle Paul wrote to a new church that he planted around the year 50, 51 AD. Um, He started this church. He fled because of persecution. He was not able to be there as long as he wanted to so that he could build and establish this congregation. 
He sent one of his associates, Timothy, up to Thessalonica, it's in northern Greece, to check things out and see how they were doing and encourage them. Timothy brought back a report and Paul replied with 1 Thessalonians. After they received 1 Thessalonians, word got back to Paul about other issues, other problems, other alarms, other concerns, unsettling concerns and problems. And then Paul replied once again with 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is really the heart of this letter. It's really the meat of this letter. It's really why Paul wrote. Their, 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 their hearts are unsettled. Their, their, their thinking has been confused. They are, verse 2, they are quickly shaken in mind. They're alarmed. So they need comfort and they need truth. And that's what Paul, and, and listen, no matter what else that you read in these verses, and let me tell you, this is, this is one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible. Really, it's very, very, I mean, when you read things like son of law, man of lawless, what in the world? You think your mind wonders when I preach? My mind wonders when I preach. I'm reading this and I'm going, oh, man of lawlessness, who is that? And son of perdition and restraining what in the world's going on and so on and so forth I, I, I totally I get it I get it it's a very difficult passage of scripture with a very simple lesson very complicated passage with a very uncomplicated take home truth and so what I'd like for us to do today is just work through the, the complicated part of this passage so that we can understand as best as we can Oh, what's going on here? And then I want to get to the lesson because the lesson is a lesson not only for Christians that lived 2,000 years ago, but it's a lesson for us today, all right? So let's talk about the hard stuff first. This, this is a hard, why is this a hard passage? This is a hard passage of scripture because the apostle Paul speaks about a mysterious man of lawlessness who will precede the coming of the Lord. That, it's very complicated. And, and, and um, articles and essays and books have been written about you know, this mysterious man of lawlessness. But, but it's hard because Paul talks about this man of lawlessness who will precede the coming of the Lord. Now, um, if you're new to Christianity... It's important that I talk first about the storyline of Christianity. Christianity has a storyline. Christianity has a narrative arc. And by that, I don't mean it's fiction. I just mean there's a plot, all right? Um, And by the way, if you are ever asked, now tell me what the core truth about Christianity is. Uh, Pay attention because you can, in just a few sentences, summarize the the narrative arc of Christianity. And it's in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That's the storyline of Christianity. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Say that with me on three. One, two, three. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Again, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Creation, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Creation... Everything that we can see and we cannot see comes to us by means of an almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, good and holy God who created all 
that is seen and unseen. And when he created it, he said, this is good. This is good creation. Fall. What's that? Well, the pinnacle of creation, human life. The pinnacle of creation. God created humans to be his representatives, to be his icons throughout creation. Our spiritual ancestors, Adam and Eve, committed insurrection against our holy God when they chose to be God rather than serve God. And as a result, everything is broken. Have you noticed that? Everything is broken. Our relationships with one another are broken. Our relationships with our world, with the environment and systems and government are broken. Do you know why we have three branches of government? You know why? Because we don't want to, we do not want to put power into one entity or one person, you see? We, so we want to kind of dilute it. We, kind of, we want to manage the damage, you see? Because it's broken. And most importantly, our relationship with God is broken. It's broken. Everything's broken. Creation, fall, redemption. Redemption. God, in his great love, chose not to annihilate us, but rather, in his love, he sent his son to heal the brokenness. God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, came to heal all that's broken by becoming broken for us. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died On that cross, he paid our sin debt against a holy and righteous God because God will never negotiate his holiness. He will never negotiate that. So that insurrection has to be accounted for, and Jesus accounted for it. He died as an innocent victim of injustice to pay our sin debt, and God accepted it and vindicated his son by raising him bodily from the dead. He ascended and is enthroned at the right hand of the Father, and he reigns and rules over all. He has sent his spirit upon his people, whose ministry and work then is to continue the message of redemption through Christ and Christ alone, that, that this Jesus is the center of the universe, and in him all things hold together. Creation, fall, redemption, and then the final stage of the narrative arc of salvation history, restoration. Restoration. There will come a day called the day when the king will appear and finalize the remaking of the new heavens and the new earth. And we will worship and serve him apart from the presence of evil in new bodies forever. That's our destiny, church. We are a people of destiny. And this is so important because this means that there's more to come. There is more. To, and, and when we realize that there's more to come, we will stop living as if this is our final destination. It's not. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. This is, that's the gospel story. And that's the gospel story that the Apostle Paul shared with the Thess- Thessalonian church 2,000 years ago. It is solid truth. Well, one Sunday at the Thessalonian church, someone stood up and someone said, Hey, everybody, 
I have a letter from the Apostle Paul. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. It's happened. Jesus has already come. He's here. Let's celebrate, okay? And everybody is there. They're like, what? Now, you know, us Midwesterners, we're so polite. If I stood up there and said that, you'd say, well, that's, that's nice, Pastor. We're going to do Panera or the Courier today after lunch. You know, what's, not, that's not what happened. What? What's going on? Word about this heresy filtered down to the Apostle Paul who said, What? What? Uh, no, no, no. First of all, first of all, I didn't write the letter. That's a forgery. Whatever letter you're talking about is a forgery. That's what verse 2 is about. We ask you not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word, or a letter seeming to be from us. See? Paul said, you should know how I write. You should know when there's an authentic letter from me. I always sign my letters. 2 Thessalonians 3, 17. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. Paul signs his own letters. That's not my letter. I didn't write that. Number one. Number two, uh, no, Christ hasn't come, <laughs> okay? Don't you remember? We covered this. We covered this. Were you not listening? Uh, come on. That's Paul speaking now. So he just kind of goes over what he had previously told them in verses 3 through 12. And so, so Paul says... Start back from the top. Number one, the day of the Lord has not happened, period. Number two, no one knows when the day of the Lord will happen. That's what I told you in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that the appearing of Christ will come as a thief in the night. And thieves never, never come on schedule. Number three, but before the Lord appears, so the day of the Lord hasn't happened. He's going to come like a thief. We don't know when. But before he does come, God's people should expect a rebellion led by a satanic-like figure. Someone whom the Apostle Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Verse 3. The man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, or son doomed to destruction. Now, now, what do we mean by lawlessness? Let's define some terms here. Well, by, by lawlessness, we mean more than merely disobedience. The word lawlessness literally means without law. Without law. So without law means that I'm going to make my own law. Without law means I'm, I should have the freedom to do what I want to do. Without law means I'm going to decide what's morally right and morally wrong. Without law means I'm going to, make, I'm going to call the shots myself. Without law means I will proclaim myself to be God. Lawlessness. Who is this man of lawlessness? Who is this person? I can confidently tell you. I don't know. I have no idea. I don't even know that Paul knows. See? We don't know. We know that he has some sort of God complex. We know that he proclaims himself as God, verse 4. 
We know that his activity is like Satan's in that he will display false signs and wonders in all wickedness and deception. That's verse 9. And we know that people will fall for this deception. That's in verses 11 and 12. We know that much, but we don't know the person's ID. We don't know. We don't know if this person is going to be a political figure or a pastor or a professor or a plumber. We don't know. We simply don't know. Whoever this man of lawlessness is, his deceptive influence will be short-lived. For at the appearing of Christ, this man of lawlessness will be annihilated by the word of Christ. That's what's behind verse 8. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. In other words, Paul says, in the end, Jesus wins. And it is an effortless victory on our Lord's behalf because he is that powerful all he needs to do is to speak and the enemy is defeated the man of lawlessness will fail oh and here's an interesting thing even though we don't know who this person is by name and even though they've not appeared on the stage of world history this person's attitude and mindset are already at work verse 7 For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So when you read the phrases man of lawlessness and mystery of lawlessness, you're reading about a certain person and a certain mindset. And the the certain mindset is this. You don't need God. You can be your own God. You can make choices without God. And, And this mindset was surely going on in the first century. My goodness, it was very evident in the Roman Empire as the Roman emperors had temples built in their name because they thought themselves divine. There was temple, there were temples in Thessalonica dedicated to Roman emperors. And even, listen to this, even in the city of Jerusalem around the year A.D. 40, the Roman emperor Caligula wanted to have a statue of himself built in the Holy of Holies in the Jerusalem temple. Oy vey. <laughs> Had he not been conveniently murdered, he would have succeeded. So you see, this mindset is already at work. And, and this, is not, this, is, this is not just something we read from the Apostle Paul Write down 1 John chapter 5, verse 18 and 22. The apostle John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. You see that? See? It's going to be a person, but there's also a mindset. And therefore, we know that it is the last hour. And, And when John says last hour, he's not talking about the last 60 minutes. He's talking, about, he's talking about the fact that creation, fall, redemption, we're, we're headed toward the last stage in salvation history. That's what he means by that. This is the last, there's, there's one more move to make here till we see the restoration of all things, you see. 1 John 5, who is the liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist. So, so the Antichrist is whoever denies the Father and the Son, you see. Not only a person, but a mindset 
and attitude. So, so, so Paul says all this to say, I understand any angst you may feel, but listen, no, A, I didn't write the letter, B, Jesus has not yet appeared. Go back over your notes. Go back. We've covered this, Paul says. We've already talked about this. Verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Jesus Christ will not appear until a counterfeit Christ appears. This man of lawlessness. And this man of lawlessness thinks he's God. And he will deceive people in the same way that Satan deceives people. Listen, Satan's biggest deception is to get you to think you're God. He did that to our spiritual ancestor, Adam and Eve. You will be like God. You'll make decisions like God. You need God. This God complex is at work today. And, and, and this man of lawlessness, his influence is going to be short-lived because when Jesus appears, he will annihilate him with the breath of his mouth, the word of truth. So, finally, Paul says, verses 13 through 17, Finally, brothers, God loves you, okay? You don't need to be alarmed. You're loved by God. God loves you. I love you. I'm praying for you. In the end, Jesus wins. So stand firm. Stand firm, okay? Okay. That's the complicated part. There it is. That's the complicated part. It's a very, very complicated passage with a very uncomplicated point. And here it is. Listen up. When your heart feels alarmed and when your mind feels unsettled, when you experience a faith quake, go back to the truth. Go back, go back to the truth. Read the truth. Love the truth. Love the truth. Loving the truth will always comfort your spiritual confusion. That was the word then, and it's the word today. Love the truth. The love of truth will always comfort spiritual confusion. See, the problem with the man of lawlessness and those he deceives is they don't love the truth. The privilege of being chosen by God is felt through active trust in the Spirit's truth. The emotional well-being of eternal comfort and good hope come from standing firm in biblical truth. Love the truth, Paul says. Loving truth will always comfort your spiritual confusion. And notice the apostle says that we are to love the truth, not not just know the truth or recognize the truth or detect the truth or appreciate the truth, but love the truth. To have an amorous affection for God's truth. For to be a human is to be a lover. And we are what we love. We are what we love. So what do you love? You love the truth, God's truth, the truth of Christ. Church, are we we following God in this? Are we? Do do we tend the garden of our emotions with the tools of biblical truth? 
When there's some alien desire or fear renting space in our brains, are we willing to search the Bible for a piece of inspired truth, truth that will undeceive our hearts? And the the Bible has that kind of power, you know? The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Penetrates to to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It uncovers the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The Bible is the book that understands me most because it is the living word of God. And it has the power to alter the way you think. And in altering the way you think, it can change the way you see life. And in changing the way you see life, you begin to change the way you live life. The Bible has that power because it's truth. Do you love it? Do you love it? Loving the truth will always comfort your spiritual confusion. So what is it that's causing you spiritual confusion this morning? Hmm? What is that? I wonder. What is it that's giving you a faith quake? Is it false teaching? Is there a false teaching that's going on? Have you been listening to a false teacher? Would you be able to detect false teaching if you heard it? Is it job stress? Is that what's alarming your spirit this morning? Uncertainty about your future? Is it deceit? Do you, do you find yourself dabbling with deceit? Dipping into disobedience? Listen, listen. Church, I love you so much. Sin will always mess with your mind. Always messes with your mind. Is there a virus of lawlessness that has lodged itself into your heart? Um, One of the scholars that I was making friends with in my study this past week is a guy by the name of F.F. Bruce. He's a New Testament scholar. And in his commentary over 2 Thessalonians, I mean, he listed all of the possibilities that he could think of that the man of lawlessness might be. And then he concluded several pages with this quote. It was the best quote. He said this, You know, really our question about this passage ought not be who the lawless one is. Rather, our question should be, Lord Is it I? So so in what ways does the spirit of lawlessness show up in my life? Because truth be told, there's a part of me that wants to make my own law. There's a part of me that I just want to do what I want to do. I don't want anybody giving me grief over it. There's a part of me that I want to sit in the seat in the temple. What's that? That means I want to rule. I want to be in charge. I am King Randy. Emperor of, 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 the, of, the, of the mighty realm of, 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 of Randyville. So serve me. Satisfy me. Give yourself for me. Die for me. Well, no wonder we're confused. No wonder. 
Uh, there's a book called Predictably Irrational. <laughs> and in it, the author is a researcher, and he claims that uh, you know, most of us are masters at deceiving ourselves and, and then justifying our actions. And in particular, uh, the author says, you know, we want to make our decisions not based on what's right, but just based on what we want. <laughs> so he tells his own story about buying a car. He wrote, When I turned 30, I decided it was time to trade in my motorcycle for a car, but I couldn't decide which car was right for me. And so at this time, the, you know, the web was just taking off, and to my delight, I found an internet site that provided advice on purchasing cars. And so the author goes on to describe how he you know, had to answer a series of questions on this website, which then gave him the recommendation based on his answers to the questions of which car he should purchase. And this website said that based on the answers to the questions, he should purchase a Ford Taurus. And this is how he describes his reaction. He says, the problem with that was that I had just surrendered my motorcycle. And I could not see myself driving a sedate sedan. wasn't going to happen. So now I'm facing a dilemma, he said. You know, I had tried this deliberate and thoughtful process for my car selection, and I didn't like the answer I got. So I did what I think anybody in my position would do. I hit the back button a few times, backtracked to earlier stages of the interview process, and changed many of my original answers to what I convinced myself were more accurate and appropriate responses. And I kept this up until the car advertising website suggested that I drive a Mazda Miata. And the moment the program was kind enough to recommend a small convertible, I felt grateful for this fantastic software, and I decided to follow its advice. <laughs> what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Is it any wonder the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I know who. God understands it. And God did something about it. You see, that's ridiculous. Creation, fall, redemption. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, because he understands. And this is what he understands. You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved than you could ever dare hope. At the same time, at the same time, you're more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you're more loved than you could ever dare hope. At the same time, God God understands your heart, and God did something about it. Verse 13, God loves you. Verse 13, God has chosen you. Verse 14, to this he has called you through our gospel. The gospel is that Jesus came on a search and rescue mission for me, for us. And when he went into the temple, when he declared himself to be the temple, when he proclaimed himself God, which he did, he did not do so and then say, serve me. He said, let me serve you. Let me satisfy you. 
Let me give you. Let me die for you. Let me love you. Let me offer you eternal comfort and good hope through grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. God's grace invites you to be part of a far greater kingdom than your own. His grace cut a hole through my tiny, puny kingdom of Randyville and pulled me out and let me see something that's far greater, far more significant, something that is so huge that only one word in the Bible can adequately describe it. And it's a word Paul uses in verse 14. So that you may obtain the glory, the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory that is grounded in truth. Truth.